Hey, how's it going, eh? I'm Lee McCormick. Welcome to Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast, episode 125, Nebraska Album Review, part one. Thanks, as always, for listening and downloading the show from the website TrampsLikeUsPod.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you found it. Stay in touch with the show at the Facebook group page, Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast. We're celebrating Nebraska, released 40 years ago in September of 1982. We got a series of episodes planned for the next month, celebrating Springsteen's sixth album, kicking off with a two-part album discussion. For this album review, I'm joined by two cool cats. Tim Drake returns to the show. Tim is a big Springsteen fan and school teacher in Saskatchewan who has taught Springsteen Nebraska material as literature in his curriculum. Joining Tim and I is Dale Geist, a fellow songwriter who I met at Steve Earle's inaugural Camp Copperhead songwriting masterclass a few years ago. We're friends for life now, so it's great to have Dale on the show as well as Tim. We're going to give you some background on the album, the origins, the songwriting, the concept, the recording process. We'll go through a track-by-track analysis and then each pick our least favorite and favorite song off the album. Are you ready? Hi-ho, Silvero. My name is Frank Davis. Driver Dixie 109. I was out on Highway 17, just south of Camden Line. It was down there in the heart of Wilsonville, where I met my fate. She was standing outside the bar, said she was waiting for day, but I knew. That that was just a lie And I knew I was missing losing time Nebraska Houseless and clueless about where to turn next I decided to lose myself in the marginally more controllable terrain of my musical life with the spiderweb of my past coming up my works, I turned to a world I'd walked through as a child, remained on familiar terms with, and heard calling to me now. Nebraska began as an unknowing meditation on my childhood and its mysteries. I had no conscious political agenda or social theme. I was after a feeling, a tone that felt like the world I'd known and still carried inside me. The remnants of that world were still only 10 minutes and 10 miles from where I was living. The ghosts of Nebraska were drawn from my many sojourns into the small town streets I'd grown up on. My family, Dylan, Woody, Hank, the American Gothic short stories of Flannery O'Connor, the noir novels of James M. Cain, the quiet violence of the films of Terrence Malick, and the decayed fable of director Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter all guided my imagination. That and the flat, dead voice that drifted through my town on the nights I couldn't sleep. The voice I heard when I'd wander in a 3 a.m. trance out onto the front porch of my home to feel the sticky heat and listen to streets silent but for the occasional grinding gears of tractor trailers groaning like dinosaurs beneath the dust cloud, pulling up South Street to Route 33 
and out of town. Then, quiet. By two great guys here to talk about one of Springsteen's greatest records. I got Timothy Drake here. Welcome back to the show, Timothy. How you doing? Hello, Lee. All right, and Dale Geist is here. How you doing, Dale? It's good to have you on the show for the first time. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on, Lee. Yeah, so people might have uh, remembered Timothy from a couple episodes we did. Timothy, you're a teacher out there in Saskatchewan, a uh, big Bruce Springsteen fan, so I'm uh, happy that you're on this episode with us, and we're going to break down Nebraska. And Dale, you and I met at Steve Earle's first inaugural camp copperhead back in 2014 and uh that was such a great time and we bonded we're friends for life now right (laughs) that's right yeah so i'm happy to have you on the show a fellow songwriter uh and uh we're going to talk about springsteen nebraska this is going to be uh fabulous right a lot of stuff great stuff to talk about here I want to ask you guys when you first heard this record and not in the background and your general thoughts on the record. But before we do that, let me just uh, give a little background on the album. Uh, Nebraska. What number of record was this for him? One, two, three. One, two. Three. Okay. Born to Run's three. Darkness is four. <laughs> the river is five. Right? And yeah. it's after the river? Yeah, Nebraska. Yeah, yeah six. Yeah, so we're sixth record here. <laughs> and it's right in that sweet spot, <laughs> right? I think Springsteen's you know peak was you know 75 to 85. That's the sweet era, right? So this record is kind of right in the middle uh, there, right when he's at his peak of his uh, you know songwriting abilities, I think. right? Released September 30th, 1982, right? So we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of this mm. landmark record here. Uh, released on Columbia Records, went to number three in the U.S., Canada, U.K. Uh, ten songs on the record. And it's gone platinum, right? He sold a million records with virtually no radio support on this album, right? No singles. There was two singles released in UK only, right? Atlantic City and uh, Open All Night were released Mm. in UK only. So, like, no singles in America, yet it's still, you know, he sold a million records on it. 
All right, so a little background on the record. We kind of have to think about where Bruce is at this at this moment in time, right? We're talking about uh, September 81. He's back from a year-long world tour for the river, right? He lost the farm in Holmdale, New Jersey, where he wrote and recorded and rehearsed the river with the East... No, he didn't record it, but where he wrote and rehearsed the river with the East Street Band. So he rents this ranch by a lake in uh, Colts Neck, New Jersey, right? Very quiet, peaceful, reflective kind of place. He starts writing songs. He's uh, thinking and contemplating his past, present, future. Uh, he's contemplating the past, present, future of his country, of America. Right? He's looking at the economical and social changes over his lifetime that he's kind of lived through. Right? Themes start to emerge. Right? He's, he's looking at his childhood, his family, all right? mother, father, sister. Um, right? The songs on Nebraska are, are kind of unconsciously influenced by the, uh, the small world of Freehold, New Jersey, where he was as a child into adolescence and then through to becoming you know, a man, right? So at, at this point too, he's influenced by a lot of folk and country music, right? Woody Guthrie, Hank Williams, Johnny Cash. He was getting into that in the late seventies, right? A lot of stuff, lot of stuff came out on the river films and books, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, some of that Catholic, uh, uh, Southern Gothic kind of style, short stories. He's getting into that. That's influence, influencing his, his lyrics while on tour for the river too. He meets, uh, Ron Kovic, guy wrote uh, Born on the Fourth of July, right? He reads that book. He's invited to meet some Vietnam vets, right? Many with drug problems, uh, PTSD, some of them homeless, right? And Springsteen starts to see his beloved country in a, in a darker light, right? And this, all this is influencing Nebraska and Born in the USA, which he's writing at the same time, right? There's a lot of overlap between those two records, right? So like 80, 81 to 83, he's writing a lot of these uh, songs influenced by, by these things that he's brought into his life, right? And musically, he's influenced by folk music that, you know, was kind of created by Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, right? He just read that Woody Guthrie book in the late 70s kind of thing, right? So he's got these songs together, going to make some demos, right? Obviously, he's going to bring it to the E Street Band. That's what he does, right? So he's going to make some demos on his rented ranch. So he goes to his uh, guitar tech, this guy, Mike Batlin, says, uh, you know, get me a, give me a four track, uh, come hang out with me for, you know, a couple of weeks. We're going to record some demos for the band kind of thing. Right. So my track cassette recorder. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's a Teak Tascam Porta Studio 144, right. Which I've seen in person. They have it at the rock and roll hall of fame. Right. <laughs> so they have yeah, it there sitting. I, I saw it there last summer. You saw it there. Yeah. So it's cool. So you're looking at that. And you're like, wow, there, there it is, man. There's the recording studio that Nebraska came out of, right? The Porta studio, <laughs> right? Bought by his guitar tech, Mike Batlin. So shout out to Mike. Mike's got a big influence on this record. You might not know it, but Mike did. You know, a friend of Mike kind of told me that he's in some bad shape these days. So uh, shout out to Mike. I think he's even got like a, a GoFundMe thing for some medical bills. So if you care, kind of look up Mike Batlin and uh, we hope he's well. But anyway, like I was saying, the intent was to record some demos to play with the band. Um, and the band ended up recording these demos a little bit later. He was recording with Mike uh, late December, early January, 1981-82. Right? He brings these demos to the E Street Band in April, May of 82 to put their E Street Band magic on it. Right? But eventually, you know, Springsteen is not digging what he's coming up with with the E Street Band. Right? The demos sounded better. They're more real. They're authentic. Perhaps the first time that the E Street Band could not better a Springsteen song, right? It's just that the vibe and the and the, the lyrics kind of got lost when the band was there, you know, kind of thing. Like you think of what he did with Born in the USA, with the way that song started out as like a like a, a twelve string blues kind of thing, and it's the focus was really on the lyrics and the message of that song. And then when you hear the bombast of what he did on the the album in nineteen eighty four, the message kind of gets lost, right? Ask Ronald Reagan about that, you know? Right. Right? 
So they decided to go with the acoustic demos as the album to release, right? He actually convinced Columbia to re- release the demo, basically, right? There was thought at one point to release like a double album, uh, Nebraska and Born in the USA together, but they kind of scrapped that idea in favor of, uh, you know, Bruce releasing this Nebraska. Where he's coming from the river, the last record, there's moments on there that kind of foreshadow where he's going with his writing, some of this character uh, telling this narrative. He's going to sing in this narrative style. Like you think of uh, songs like Stolen Car, Wreck on the Highway, like I could hear those songs on the Nebraska record, right? Yeah, and Lee, I've got a couple more um anecdotes that i that i hope are actually true about the um that came between the you know the the making of the demo and the actual release of nebraska for one thing bruce says he he doesn't treat these um you know the cassette tapes the four track cassette tapes with any sort of you know kid gloves he's carrying these things around in his pocket he's you know and they're cassettes to begin with so um was uh dubious whether they could actually get usable masters from them and the second thing that I heard, and you would probably know whether this is true, is that they had to go hunt down the original, um, you know, Porta Studio that these were recorded on because it was whatever. It was, you know, like they didn't, these things were not fine, finely tuned instruments. So in order to get the right playback, you had to get the machine that it was recorded on. Right. Um, so that was my understanding of, of uh, some of the journey to, uh, yeah. to the master. And all that stuff adds to the magic of the record. Right. They, oh, yeah. So there's there's a lot of interesting stories about the recording process. You know, he's got this tape and recorded on the, the Tascam recorder. You know, the heads weren't cleaned. Like, they were just making a demo. So they weren't, like, cleaning the heads after each recording. Uh, there was a thing where they when they were recording, the speed of the tape was inadvertently uh, left at 2 o'clock. Right? So for the mix, yeah. they moved it back to 12 o'clock. So what that does is it slows it down and it, it causes the pitch to drop too, right? So which which is a bitch if you're trying to play guitar along with the record, <laughs> right. right? Like so if the, if the song's in the in the key of G, if he's playing it in G, slow it down a bit. It's gonna go to like G flat, F sharp kind of thing, right? <laughs> and it's not yeah, or something in between, something right? in between, which means yeah. you can't even use a capo because it still sounds wonky kind of thing, right? So the way they recorded it, it was just two mics, a four track, and a cassette. I think he said that he recorded the whole album. For like a thousand dollars, it cost them to make to make the whole thing, right? And they mixed it through this Maestro Echoplex tape delay effect kind of thing to get some of that rockabilly slapback on the mm-hmm. vocals, right? And then they used Bruce's boombox to mix it down. So they mixed it from the Porta Studio through Bruce's boombox, and that was kind of the final thing. And what a boombox does, I don't know if you've, you've ever gone like tape to tape on a boombox. Oh, yeah. No, that's what yeah. we did before there was a Porta Studio. For Me sure. And my friend would do that. <laughs> and, and if you record like into that, it puts like automatically compresses everything, right? So everything gets yeah. kind of smashed and crushed together. And it's like everything becomes this one kind of wall of sound, which is, it's, sounds kind of cool, right? And there's an interesting story too about this in that Bruce's boombox, he was in the summer of 81, he was, on, he was out in a canoe and he had his boombox there, right? And it fell in the lake. <laughs> Right, so he, he rescued this boombox from the lake. It's all covered in mud and water, right? And he just left it out on his porch to dry out for a couple of days, right? And he's sitting there on the porch one day reading a paper, and all of a sudden the boombox comes back to life, right? It just starts playing music. <laughs> so, so, so let me let me pause this, and you can always you know edit this out later if it's not interesting. So, did did they record the demo that way, and then master the actual um, you know mixed down demo, or did they? 
did they go and make the masters, you know, onto whatever two inch tape yeah. by by get, doing Porta Studio <laughs> down to the boombox or whatever? Do you know, like through that echo, whatever echo thing is? Do, do you know what which came you know at first, or did they just master it off of the? Well, the there, were, there were there were problems, right? Because I think it came from the cassette. I'm not sure about this. Yeah. I've read a lot of stuff on that, but but the thing was they couldn't they couldn't master it because they have this cassette, and because of the limitations to, to the way it was recorded, you can't like take this to a big studio and cut a master that's going to cut vinyl that sounds comparable to anything out there, right? After a few failed attempts by uh, producers and engineers, uh, Toby Scott took a crack at it. He couldn't do it. Uh, Dennis King tried it. He couldn't get it done. They had to call in the big guns. They had to get Bob Ludwig. He's a, he's a very famous guy that masters so many. He lives right here in Portland. Does he really? Yeah. Eh? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bob Ludwig is a legendary guy. And he was able to actually get this demo cassette to uh, a tape and then master it down to, uh, to vinyl or whatever they were cutting the masters from, right? One of the reasons he's legendary. Yeah. <laughs> I bought a scooter and I rented a shack Out in the sun by the railroad track I got a job and I'm a break on my back Working and working for the big payback Frustrated blowing all my money on studio time I sent my guitar tech out to get a recorder A little less lo-fi than the cassette recorder I usually use to lay down my new song ideas I needed a better and less expensive way to tell if my new material was record-worthy. He came back with a four-track Japanese Tascam 144 cassette recorder. We set it up in my bedroom, I'd sing, play, and with the two tracks left, I could add a backing vocal, an extra guitar, or a tambourine. On four tracks, that's all you could do. I mixed it through a guitar Echoplex unit onto a beatbox, like the kind you'd take to the beach. Total cost for the project, about a grand. After that, I went into the studio, brought in the band, we recorded and remixed everything. On listening, I realized I'd succeeded in doing nothing but damaging what I'd created. We got it to sound cleaner, more hi-fi, but not nearly as atmospheric as authentic. All popular artists get caught between making records and making music. If you're lucky, sometimes it's the same thing. When you learn to craft your music into recordings, there's always something gained and something lost. The ease of an unselfconscious voice gives way to the formality of presentation. On certain records, that trade-off may destroy the essential nature of what you've done. At the end of the day, satisfied I'd explored the music's possibilities and every blind alley, I pulled out the original cassette I'd been carrying around in my jeans pocket and said, this is it. So yeah, like that was the cassette that he kept in his back pocket for like six months while he's working with the E Street Band, right? They rehearsed at Rory's uh, house with for the record. He had these like big, huge uh, rooms with like high ceilings. So they were rehearsing there and they just couldn't get it done, right? You know, regardless... I, I still want to hear them, right? They're, they were recorded. I want to hear these, oh, yeah. the, the E Street Band version of this record kind of thing, right? Like, so I'm waiting for that box set, right? I was I was waiting to do this Nebraska episode because I'm I'm like he's gonna put out a box set with all the extra stuff, the E Street Band versions. My friend BJ Cramp, who's been on the show many times, he's always had this idea. Imagine if there was like a super deluxe version of the Nebraska box set, and it came with like a, a replica cassette 
of like Springsteen's original cassette with like his handwriting and everything. Wouldn't that be yeah. amazing? Oh, yeah. Columbia, we got to make that happen, man. I would love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, the little mistakes with the recording of the demo, they, the speed, not cleaning the head, the, the room noise and the atmosphere, like they weren't, you know, concerned about ambient noise and stuff like that, but it gave it this unique, genuine sound kind of thing, right? To me, it, the image that I get, and I have no idea how close this is to the truth, is just like, you know, Bruce at two in the morning in a little, you know, room with one, you know, bare light bulb sitting on his bed with his acoustic guitar, you know, like playing into this Porta studio. Like that's, that's the pretty way much I want it. to imagine him recording this. Yeah, that's it, man. He's he's playing an acoustic guitar. He's got like a Gibson J two hundred or a like a, a SJ two hundred, a Southern Jumbo. We've seen a lot mm. of pictures of him around this era with that Gibson guitar. So I assume that's the acoustic guitar he's playing. Uh, there's a twelve string on a couple of tracks. Uh, he brings out the Fender Tele uh, Esquire for uh, one song, I think. Uh, is it open all night, maybe? I think open all night. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, there's a little mandolin on there that he's playing. There's a harmonica, obviously, uh, a little glockenspiel, a little keyboard, and a little tambourine, right? But it's all springs. Two vocal tracks. Two vocal tracks. Yeah. So the other thing I'm wondering too, the, the mono versus stereo debate. Okay, like so, Springsteen recorded the songs on his Porta Studio in mono. Columbia made an attempt to convert it to stereo. And it's like they would put like a stereo reverb effect on it. I don't know if you've heard a lot of those records in the 50s. Like they would take an Elvis record and then they would put like this fake stereo sound on it. Just It just sounded like it was being played in like a, a big hall with a lot of e- reverb. It's kind of weird, right? So yeah, I think they did something similar to that. And Bruce didn't like it. But the stereo mix that they made was mistakenly sent to Japan when they were pressing CDs in 1985, right? So a few of these stereo remixed versions were released and then Springsteen found out and they kind of recalled them all but a few got out and if you look on the record I think it says stereo but the rec- the songs are definitely mono I think right I- I'm looking on here and I am not actually seeing stereo or mono or anything unless I'm just unable to read the fine print on the bottom who knows but maybe I'm wrong got- maybe it's in I don't know I just hear it in mono like and I would assume like if you're if it's recorded to a four track, it's, I don't know, maybe they've stereo mixed it to the four track. I mean, you're able to do that, but I would assume since it's a no, singular you know guy. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. That's just a, that's just the Columbia. Oh, the Columbia look- <laughs> doesn't have and, and it doesn't say anything on my, on my LP about mono. Look stereo. at the actual, and, pull out the actual vinyl. It might, it might say on the actual label. Is that, can you do that? Yeah, I can do that. Give me a second. You got to know, man, this is important stuff. <laughs> I did some research, but I couldn't get a definitive answer. I, answer. I looked at a lot of uh, like uh, message group, message boards, and people are having long, long discussions about this. You know? Yeah, on the, yeah, it uh, says stereo. Yeah. It does say stereo. Stereo, yeah. eh? So maybe, I don't know. Like I was listening for it, and it doesn't sound stereo to me. I don't know. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but anyway. I was not listening for it. Um, I think I would have noticed it was about, I, I put on... Um, I had to go and take this off my actual turntable, um, which is why I took why I had to take my headphones off and go wander. Um, yeah, and I put I was listening to it today, and I wasn't listening for whether it was stereo or mono. But it, it fe- I feel like I would have noticed if it was mono, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Know. We'll see. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the album cover a little bit. Great record cover. I love it. It's a black and white photo of a of a desolate landscape. Could possibly be Nebraska, right? Somewhere in the Midwest. I believe it was not Nebraska. At some point in the distant past, I read about this photo and 
I believe it was not taken in Nebraska, but hell, it could could have been. Yeah, it might, it might have been Wyoming or something like the, that, but it, it could be Nebraska, obviously, right? It's, we're looking at the a car windshield. I think it's actually a pickup truck. We're looking out of the windshield. We see a piece of the dashboard there. We see a little bit of snow on the uh, the hood of the truck, right? We see uh, an overcast, cloudy sky. Yeah, well, we see a road there. No, no, it's very road going off into the horizon, right? No cars, nobody, nobody around. Very desolate looking. Photo was yeah, taken flat by flat horizon, flat as a table. Photo was taken by uh, David Michael Kennedy. Bruce was working with uh, art director Andy Klein, and he was suggesting, you know, I want like a landscape image, uh, you know, something to reflect, like something open, like a road or something like that. And Andy Klein suggested uh, Kennedy's portfolio photos. Right, gave it to Bruce. Bruce looked through it. He loved this image. Right, so he has that photo framed with red font, all capitals, Bruce Springsteen above, Nebraska below. Right, very striking. Song titles on red in the back. Uh, we have a very lyric- striking. Yeah, we have a lyrics inner sleeve, and on the other side we have a haunting photo of Bruce in a doorway, kind of uh, looking through from the other side. Right. Yeah, to me this like feels like it's through a doorway into you know some sort of um, you got almost like Victorian era velvet wallpaper there, so. And this sort of old chandelier, I'm just imagining like almost an abandoned mm. Victorian house that he's kind of wandering through alone, you know, with the ghosts has, of the characters in his songs. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it, it, the whole the whole thing, you know, it just has that vibe and and red and white black. I'm thinking now, um, you know, in the uh, I used to be a filmmaker, and there was a, a long period during which um, I really wanted to work in just black and white but i wanted one color in there like a a a red i just wanted black and white and red and i wonder how much that might have been influenced Influenced by by, that yeah like yeah (laughs) it hadn't occurred to me i was thinking more more like stranger than paradise the um the old you know uh 60 millimeter movie but yeah Yeah. that might have been might have been nebraska too right a little bit more on that demo tape that he was carrying around like there were some extra songs on there as well right uh johnny bye bye was on that tape a song that appeared on a B-side from Born in the USA. Downbound Train was on there. Uh, Child Bride was on that tape. That song kind of turned into Working on the Highway from Born in the USA. Uh, I thought My Father's House wasn't on that tape. I think that was later recording. I think he did that one in May after you know the demos were made, December, January, and after he tried uh, working with the E Street Band on those songs. And there's a whole slew of outtakes, right? This is the era where Springsteen's going to put out a, a record of 10 songs, but he's going to record 30 or 40 kind of thing, right? So let me just go down a list here. Uh, song Big Payback, I like. That was the B-side to Open All Night. It's kind of like a rockabilly thing. Uh, we got songs called uh, Daniel and Lion's Den, Danger Zone, Robert Ford and Jesse James, The Answer, Losing Kind, uh, Vietnam, Red River Rock, Pink Cadillac, Dream Baby, Born in the USA, Fade to Black, Club Soul City, I think that was on the Gary U.S. Bonds record, uh, Love is a Dangerous Thing, Summer Nights, Fistful of Dollars, which turned into Atlantic City. So there's a lot of songs that didn't make it to Nebraska that he's you know still in the vault. I have a bunch of them on bootlegs, and they're... You know, similar to Nebraska, they're, they're very solo acoustic. A lot of them have drum machines with them. And a lot of them have that kind of like rockabilly kind of vibe to them, right? I think Nebraska's kind of got a rockabilly vibe in there a little bit, right? Yeah. Especially stuff like uh, you know, Open All Night. So are you saying like th- that was during that era that he's recording them, but they're not all on that same demo tape, right? Correct, yeah. The demo tape had about uh, maybe a dozen songs, some extras right. that weren't on Nebraska. And, uh, you know, I guess subsequently he was recording all through this area. And then it bleeds into the Born in the USA sessions at the same time. 
when I was in Barcelona, Spain a couple of years ago, they had, I was at a record store and they had a bootleg record of all the Nebraska outtakes. It was like 80 bucks or something like that for three records. And I had it in my hand and then I left, right? And I was working on the cruise ships and I came back like two weeks later and I kept thinking about that record and then I went back and it was gone, right? Oh, <laughs> happens sometimes. If you're out there, whoever's got it, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> send it this give way. Give Lee so. a call, yeah. <laughs> Let's get into some uh, some of our personal moments with the record. Uh, how about you, Timothy? When did you fear, first hear it? And uh, kind of when did you buy it? And when did, uh, when did it really affect you? When did you take it in? What are your thoughts, general thoughts on the record? Well, I uh, first encountered those songs not on the album Nebraska, uh, but on the live box set. So I, as I, as we talked about in a previous episode of Tramps Like Us, I became a fan of Springsteen, 1984, 85, when Bruce Mayne was at its height, Born in the USA was the most popular rock album in the US, in Canada. And Born in the USA was the first album I ever bought with my own money. So I had heard, uh, as I said, I, 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 I first heard a few of the songs from Nebraska on the box set, I received that as a as a present from my parents on Christmas Day, 1986. Uh, cassette two, I had it in cassette form. The, the box set uh, it includes the songs "Nebraska," "Johnny Nine, "Reason to Believe," all recorded from the Born in the USA tour. And it was interesting when I when I got that box set. I was just a little kid, and I would and I spent several months listening over and over to tape one that has the 1970s material, Thunder Road through through Raisin, uh, Raise Your Hand. And then I moved on to tape three that has the Born in the USA material, plus The River and, and War, which was the single that came out for the live box set. And so it was only really like, you know, nighter. We're getting into late 1987. I did the deep dive into tape two. And I came to love the three songs on the box set that come from Nebraska, particularly Johnny 99. And initially, it was less the story of the song that won me over and more the urgency of Bruce's singing, as well as, you've already mentioned it, the rockabilly beat. And I, in fact, I think of all the songs on the album Nebraska, this is the one where I have a concert version. I still love the version of John, Johnny 99 on the live box set more than the studio version, which I'm also a fan of. Well, around this time, Lee, you'd remember this, Much Music started playing, uh, it, their, it did their spotlight episodes and occasionally they do Bruce. And in the spotlight episode, they'd play it, the videos for Atlantic City, the only time it was ever shown on, yeah. on Much Music. Uh, so when it came to the album itself, my dad bought Nebraska the album in May, 1989 from a record store in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And we listened to it from start to finish for the first time on our drive home that late afternoon from Saskatoon to Prince Albert, uh, a 90 mile stretch of highway in the Canadian prairies. Perfect. We listened to it, then we talked about it. And in the 33 years since, I've listened to Nebraska probably hundreds of times. Uh, it's wow. actually, it, it spurred my love for alternative country. I'm a big fan of John Prine, Towns Van Zant, the Cowboy Junkies. Yeah. And, you know, it's really Nebraska that that introduced me to, to made me a, a, a fan of, of the alt country root scene. Dale, how about you? When did you first hear the record and uh, what kind of impact has it made on you? Your general thoughts on the album? It's likely that I first heard it in about uh, 86 because I, <clears throat> I had a roommate 
um, a woman that was a big Springsteen fan and I was not a big Springsteen fan. I had, you know, when I, so when I was 15, that's when born the, uh, born to run came out and my folks read Newsweek and, um, since Bruce was on the cover of Newsweek, they bought me and my sister's born to run, uh, you know, for Christmas and we liked it well enough. Um, but you know, subsequently, you know, as I got older, I went in other directions. Um, and you know, by the time Nebraska was, was coming out, I had gotten into, you know, things like, um, kind of the late sixties acid rock stuff. I was listening to Hendrix and, you know, the Jefferson airplane and so forth. And also, um, like uh new wave and kind of art rock right i was a big talking heads fan and um king crimson and bowie and that kind of stuff so you know bruce is not really in my um in my wheelhouse at that point and then pretty soon after that um he comes out with born in the usa and, and he's just inescapable and i'm just too cool to be into anybody that is that popular (laughs) right it was like bruce michael jackson and madonna it's like no 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 so um you know and and and, i mean also like in my defense um i was turned off by the sound of born in the usa it just was you know gargantuan i think was the or no bombastic was the word that that tim used Mm -hmm. and uh you know so it really didn't knock me out um and uh but then, so in the late eighties, um, <clears throat> I start taking guitar lessons with, with this guy, Johnny Harper. And, um, you know, I show up and he's like, what are you into? And I'm like, well, you know, um, I'm a huge Dylan fan and, um, <clears throat> I'm in Hank Williams and Robert Johnson, you know? And so he's like, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're into like the dark guys, you know, the heavy stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. And, um, you know, as, as our lessons progress and, you know, we're talking about music, he's, he's keeps talking about Bruce, you know, and this is a guy whose um, tastes I really respect. And, you know, I mean, I actually just uh, emceed at his memorial a couple of weeks ago and, and um, was, he was hugely influential. A lot of people in, uh, <clears throat> in the Bay area. And, uh, I sort of like, I'm like, all right, you know, I might do this. And he might've actually recommended that I go and pick up Nebraska. And, um, so I've got my first CD player. It's, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And, um, I think Nebraska is, is maybe even the first CD I bought is one of the first CDs I bought, which is, which is kind of ironic The you know, the, the highest fidelity format that, that we've come up with so far <laughs> yeah, right. to play, you know, a cassette demo. Um, you know, but I put it on, I'm living in like a rough part of Oakland at the time and, um, feeling kind of lost and alone myself really at, you know, at, at loose ends, you know, and, um, it just, it just cuts straight through, you know, like, you know, it starts with the song Nebraska, which is just as cold as hell and, you know, track after track after track, he is just going straight into the the heaviest um, notions of um, of what it is to be to be a human being, you know, the mm. the the sort of you know how how dark and how cold can it really be, um, you know, and, and in places where you you're only you're only encountering this in in Hank Williams or Johnny Cash or like I said Robert Johnson, some of these guys, and so I'm I 
I, I become a Springsteen fan at that point and, and, you know, subsequently have, have gotten into, you know, all the other great stuff that he's done. When I first heard the record, you know, it took me a while to get, I was young. I was probably eight years old when this record came out, 10 when Born in the USA came out. Now I, I was a big fan then, right? But I, you know, I love the E Street Band. I love the rock and roll. I love Born in the USA, right? And I didn't really get Nebraska. I knew it was a solo acoustic record. It wasn't really my thing as a kid, you know, I wasn't ready for it yet. I knew Atlantic City. That song kind of got some minimal airplay. I remember seeing that video. And then, like you said, Tim, the three tracks on the live 7585 box. You know, I knew I knew those three tracks there in that middle section there, whatever that side uh, side six. I had the LP set, right? So I think it was side six is kind of the, all the acoustic stuff. Yeah. You know, I got the record finally late 80s. I probably got it used at a shop when I was just, you know, I was such a huge fan. I had to have it. So I got it then. And I got more into the record probably in the 90s. You know, as I grew up older in my teen years, early 20s, I was getting more into singer-songwriter stuff, uh, you know, learning to write my own songs. And this was kind of a template. This is this is how you do it kind of thing, right? I was big into Neil Young, Steve Earle, Hank Williams, all that stuff, right? So this is, this is the record that fits with those kind of guys, right? Uh, it's an incredible artistic statement. You know, the country and Western influence, the folk influences – the rockabilly influences. There's a little punk in there. There's a little uh, electro. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the band Suicide uh, from New York City. They're like an electro punk band. They came out of CBGBs, and they were just two guys, Martin Rev and Alan Vega, and they had this kind of uh, trippy kind of drum machine stuff with keyboards, and it was very kind of, uh, there's some elements of that on this record, which uh, we'll get to when we go through a track by track, but, uh, you know, some of the rhythms, the repetitions, the building to a climax, I think you got a lot of that stuff from this band Suicide. You know, I got the CD later on, but, uh, you know, for this record, you got to listen to it on vinyl, right? You got to have the record, you know, you got to listen to it preferably alone, maybe headphones, preferably with the lights completely out, maybe one candle, <laughs> right? That's yeah. the way to do it. Once a year, by I got yourself, to, by yourself, yeah, once a year, I got to have a Nebraska night where I just put the record on <laughs> and turn the lights out in one candle kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, so... So that's Nebraska. That's a little overview. How about we do a track by track? Are you ready? Should we go uh, break this down song by song? Yeah, let's do it. Shall we do it? Shall we drop the needle on uh, side one? The the, uh, record opens with the title track, Nebraska. Bad. 
Lee and I often talk about the poetic devices uh, that are and literary devices used in Bruce's songs. And there's one uh, poetic device that really stands out in the song Nebraska, really the main poetic device used here and throughout the album, and that is and that is understatement. So, you know, he uh, Bruce was uh, influenced, uh, read about Charles Starkweather and the 11 murders Charles Starkweather committed back in the 50s. He saw a fictionalized version of those of the story further in the movie Badlands from the 1970s and that led him to compose the song and as I say the understatement to me is one of the things that really stands out understatement is deliberately uh, representing something as much less in magnitude or in importance than it really is. You know, there's examples of understatement uh, in, in Nebraska. Me and her went for a ride, sir, and 10 innocent people died. I can't say that I'm sore for things that we have done. And so the song's first person narrator, this is a monologue uh, spoken from the perspective of the murderer himself based on the real life Charles Starkweather, the song's first person narrator describes his crimes in this matter of fact style. And as a result, I think it makes his confession to the degree that you could call the song a confession. It makes his confession all the more horrific. And I think that's what stood out to me in anything when I first heard this song as it was performed uh, in, in concert and then recorded for the, the live box set. I mean, first, uh, I want to talk for just a second about Badlands because it's a real cool movie. Um, yeah, and Mar it was, Martin Sheen was in that, right? And uh, Sissy Spacek. Exactly. Martin Sheen's... Yeah, Terrence uh, Malick. Takes the lead. Terrence Malick directs, directs it. Yeah. And it's it, it, the actual Charlie Starkweather murders do not place, take place in Nebraska, but it is in the upper mid, South Dakota, Midwest, somewhere like that, the Plains. And um, and I think the Badlands, the movie as well. I mean, could could very well be South Dakota because that's where the Badlands are. Um, it's a real cool movie, and you know when you see it, you'll get why it in you know like the connection between that movie and this song. Th this Bruce opening with um, a song about uh, uh, that's sung from the perspective of a um, uh, serial killer. Um, on death row is is a bold move this is just about as cold and dark a, a subject matter um and approach as as you can get in in american music or any any poem anywhere ever written um so he does this you know like he's a he's a pop star and he starts an album with this um, well, it's, move it's funny we think about all the left turns, right? Every time Springsteen seems to put out something huge, he takes this drastic left turn because he's like, I don't want to be pigeonholed into be that. I'm not always the guy on the river. Sometimes I'm this yeah. guy, right? Yeah, no, and for sure, because there were so many feel-good tunes on the river. I mean, there, you know, there was Stolen Car and, and, and a couple other, you know, whoa, things that could have been at yeah. home in Nebraska. But but for sure, he has, you know, like, uh, you know, Sherry Darling. Sherry Darling, stuff. Hungry Heart, all that <laughs> stuff, yeah, yeah. Um, so so he's doing this and it's quiet like it, it opens with um a, you know a reverbed um wail of a harmonica sort of it, it, and you can picture it being in this big empty room and um very faintly you kind of hear this guitar you know getting something's going on it's almost not even identifiable as a guitar there's some some kind of musical motion happening and then he starts singing and and the singing too is 
um, sort of quiet, right? Yeah. He's, he's close to the mic. And, um, and the whole thing gives this impression of being both quiet and also empty. Like, like it's all happening in this big empty room. And then he starts singing about, you know, I'm this guy that's uh, sitting here on death row and here's why, and here's what's going on. And, um, you know, the punchline is he's hoping that when they throw that switch and, and it electrocutes him, his baby's sitting right there on his knee. So it's, it's a love song. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this song from a guy sitting on death row waiting to get executed ends up being a love song. And of course, you know, the, um, the biggest understatement of all, right. Is the, is the, um, is the final line, you know, I guess there's just a meanness in this world. You want to know why I did what I did? I guess there's just a meanness in this world, right? Sort of that line he borrowed from uh, Flannery O'Connor. Right. Nice. Okay. Cool. Perfect. He, he knows when to steal yeah. and who to t- steal from. <laughs> yeah. And Lee, I, I think you, in our preliminary discussions, uh, you had uh, wanted to uh, bring up the, the influence of Flannery O'Connor on, on this song, on this album in particular. So Flannery O'Connor exerted a great deal of influence on uh, this album as a whole and this song, Nebraska, the title track in particular. And so background information about Flannery O'Connor. She was born in Savannah, Georgia. She lived from 1925 to 1964. She wrote 31 short stories and two novels. Her best known novel, Wise Blood, was adapted into a 1979 film directed by John Huston. And she's recognized as one of the uh, masters of Gothic. And Southern Gothic is fiction that sit in the American South that includes grotesque, transgressive characters, macabre uh, incidents mixed with dark humor, angst. She's also celebrated for her prose style. Uh, the poet Elizabeth Bishop wrote the following about O'Connor's stories. She said those stories are clear, hard, vivid, and of description, phrases, and an odd insight that contain more real poetry than a dozen books of poetry. So Bono, Nick Cave, P.J. Harvey, Sunjan Stevens, Lucinda Williams, they've all cited O'Connor as a major influence. And Bruce began reading her work in 1979, 1980, after he saw the film adaptation of Wise Blood. And in an interview you've already quoted from 1980 Stone uh, magazine, he was discussing the origins of the song and album, Nebraska. And and he said this, he said, I guess my influence at the time uh, were the movie Badlands and these stories I was reading by Flannery O'Connor. She's just incredible. And, and the song Nebraska, as inspired as it was by Badlands, by the real life story of Charles Starkweather, it was also partially shaped by O'Connor's most famous short story, Man is Hard to Find. And if you go to the end of that story, it has a shock ending. And there's this character, he calls himself the misfit. He's this remorseless escape convict. And at the end of the story, he murders the protagonist, this hypocritical, uh, genteel Southern lady who's known only as the grandmother. And before he shoots her, the misfit utters a nihilistic monologue that rejects Christ's divinity. And that monologue 
concludes the famous line, there is no pleasure but meanness. And that is the credo of this character, the misfit. This is his self-explanation. And it's, so it's from this speech that we get the final verse of Nebraska, the song. Uh, so, you know, for me, O'Connor, O'Connor's an acquired taste. Uh, I don't rank her as highly as some literary scholars do, but her influence on Bruce is undeniable. And what he did in her work is fascinating. There was a 1998 interview uh, that Bruce did, and he told the interviewer, there were some dark things, a component of spirituality that I sensed in her stories. And that set me off exploring characters of my own. And you can also feel the presence, the influence of O'Connor on the ghost of Tom Joad and on Devils mm -hmm. and Dust. Sure. Uh, and just about all the work that Bruce did yeah. uh, with Nebraska. Wow. Fascinating. Love it. And Starkweather was a working title for this at one point, right? It's a great name. He saw this movie, and I think he kind of, the song is kind of based on the movie rather than the the real yeah. events of Starkweather, because, you know, it's real life is more horrific than the movies kind of thing, right? Uh, Bruce said that he was singing about um, American isolation, Right, song shows how people can change when they lose faith in, in their friends, their community, their jobs, their government, when they laid off work, right? right. It kind of, you lose the sanity a little bit, right? Things that keep you sane, your meaning for life. You know, if you lose yeah. that stuff, you can kind of go in, in these different directions down these downward spirals. And yeah. I think that happens to a lot of these characters. Yeah, right? we're going to hit that a lot in some of the upcoming songs. For Starkweather, it seems like it's more like this dude is just unmoored he's like he was sadistic he was crazy kind of he, thing he's right? out there well i mean i i don't mean for Starkweather, but i, I do mean for the protagonist of the song the he was the song. just unmoored from his own humanity right he he was a, a guy adrift um and yeah one other thing i wanted to mention you know we find out as i'm i'm sure your your listeners know um bruce is often inspired by movies right we think of him as a guy who goes out in the streets and he observes this and that but i mean he's sitting in a movie theater a lot mm -hmm. and you know like whether it's grapes of wrath or what have you um you know he takes a lot of inspiration for this which i think is very valid i mean this is a this is a, a legit form of um it, it's it's maybe the other great american art form of the 20th century right it's for rock sure. and roll and you know it's music and, and movies Absolutely. maybe comic books i don't know drive-ins with the girlfriends you know that's it. <laughs> but this song, I think, is, is a great, uh, uh, in the folk song tradition of a murder ballad, right? Like Carter Family, they have that song, uh, Banks, of the Ohio is Banks of the Ohio. Is that the river song? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's, that's yeah, cool. and that's descended from an old English murder ballad as well. Yeah, so it's in that kind of um, lineage. I wanted to mention this Steve Earle story, Dale. We have that Steve Earle connection, both at Camp Copperhead. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I was hanging out with Steve backstage at the Phoenix, this club in Toronto. This was, I think, 2016, maybe. We were upstairs and we were talking and about Springsteen and stuff like that. And he was telling me, I was like, when was the first time you met Springsteen? And he goes, uh, he goes, I was playing Copperhead Road Tour. This is 1988, right? I knew he was in the crowd. He does his full three-hour show. Right, and he goes back for a couple of encores. He goes back for a third encore, second or third encore, something like that, solo acoustic, and he plays Nebraska. Right, so he closes this whole show playing Nebraska, which he'd played before, but he didn't do it kind of every night. But I think he yeah. knew Springsteen was there, so he pulled out Nebraska. Right, so he goes back and he's in his dressing room after the show, and he's in one of those old timey dressing rooms, and he sees coming down the hallway is uh, Springsteen, Patty, and John Fogarty, and they're all coming to his <laughs> dressing room. Right, and they said he comes to the doorway, and Springsteen looks at him and goes. 
Ballsy cover, man. Ballsy cover. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm not going to play Nebraska. Or I said, fuck it. I don't want to play. <laughs> so we did the whole show. It was copyright tour. And then I walked out by myself for the encore. Did Nebraska. And then when the show was over with, I'm sitting in my dressing room. It was one of those kind of tall dressing tables. And it was in the palace. And they're like, you know, they're talking your feet kind of having. I'm sitting there. I'm just soaked. And, and I look at down the, my door. My dressing room door is open. And there's people in there. And they're right now. So I look at my and there's fucking Bruce Springsteen and John Fogarty coming down the hallway and Patty. <laughs> and um, he gets about halfway down the hallway and he sees me, he makes out and he goes, balls in cover, man. <laughs> very first thing he ever said to me. So. Wow. That's cool. That's a and I played it at Carnegie Hall. I opened that 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 Carnegie Hall tribute and I played it there. I opened the show with Bruce standing like 10 feet away. Excellent. Excellent. And, and I wonder if that, um, if, if, do you know if, if Steve doing Nebraska is, is uh, recorded anywhere, released anywhere? Oh, yeah, you can get it. It, it, is, was, yeah. it was the okay. B side of uh, something off Copperhead Road. Uh, oh, cool. Uh, I'm some, sorry, I don't know that offhand, but it's on there. It's on a lot of like deluxe editions. You can, but yeah, he said that he was performing. On the anniversary edition of Guitar Town, there's a full concert, yeah. I think, from Cleveland. Yeah. And he, he plays Nebraska in the. Uh, in the uh, in the encore. Okay, yeah, I should get that. Yeah, he was getting into uh, some uh, you know uh, anti death penalty advocacy around then. He was really supporting some people that were against the death penalty, and he was performing this song as his song in the show to bring awareness to the death penalty. And he said he would perform that song until because he didn't have a death penalty song of his own. So he, until he wrote Billy Austin, this was the song he would kind of do for that. Yeah, not not to get too much onto into a. Um, uh, Steve detour. Yeah, we can do a whole other podcast about that. But uh, you know, he mentioned I think when we were at camp um, that you know he go, he goes to Nashville as a as a pretty young man, and um, it's not happening, right? He's not getting cuts, um, and he's thinking about he's he's got no money. He's pretty much on the verge of packing it in and going to um, going back to Texas and seeing what he could do. And I think somebody gifts him um, a ticket to to see Bruce in Nashville. Yeah, Murfreesboro, and, Tennessee, actually. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Okay, so you know this. I know, you know this, this is a big story. This story yeah. better better than me, I'm yeah. sure. I think it's right? Murfreesboro, and so, Tennessee. Yeah, and so and he and he and he comes and he you know he goes to that concert and as as we all are when he when we first see Bruce in concert, you know he's moved. Uh, his life has changed, and he goes back, and um, and he and he suddenly knows kind of how to write a, write an album, and knows that that's what he should be doing, and he goes and writes guitar song. Yeah, because he, he goes to the concert, and Springsteen opens with "Born in the USA," and he's like, "Oh my God, he's opening the concert with the first song off his record. That's it, man!" And he's like, "Okay, so I'm gonna have Guitar Town." He wrote, and then he wrote "Down the Road." Those are my two bookends. Now I'm gonna fill it in the middle, kind of thing, right? And he had Beautiful. that concert. All right. So before we move on from uh, Nebraska, check out the VH1 Storytellers episode. There's a, he does a great version of it there, and then he kind of gets in a little bit of uh, detail afterwards about the writing process uh, of that song and this record and kind of uh, writing from a narrative. Uh, that was kind of one of the early examples of uh, my narrative songwriting. That's where I started to take a different approach on the River album. I wrote The River and Stolen Car, which were really two songs where I took on a character and I tried to walk in his shoes and I tried to get you to walk in his shoes also. Songs were quite different. Um, I followed this through on the Nebraska record and on the Ghost of Tom Joad record and also on a good deal of, of Devils and Dust. It uh, kind of frees me to choose 
characters, uh, in some ways different from myself, um, to sing in those voices and to, uh, to tell those stories along with my own. Um, this type of writing is uh, it's always, it's often very detailed because um, you're creating a physical world that's not yours. I'm in the desert, I'm in Texas, I'm in uh, uh, Mexico. Um, so it involves a certain amount of research. For this song, I remember I'd, I'd been moved by the Terrence Malick film Badlands and, and I got interested in the story. Um, there was a book out at the time called Carol about a girl that was a part, Charlie Starkweather's partner. And I, just out of a, the blue, I decided to call the newspaper in, uh, in Nebraska. I called up and the woman who had reported the story was still there 30 years later. So I got to speak to her. And um, she was kind of, she was just friendly and helpful. Well, the, the song is, you can put together a lot of detail, but unless you pull something up out of yourself, it's just going to lay flat on the page. You got to find out what you have in common with that character, no matter who they are or what they did. Um, so Nebraska is a song written with the premise that that everyone knows what it's like to be condemned, which they do, of course. The body of the song, the first five verses, is basically repertorial. Uh, it's information you can glean from researching the story. It's it's spooky because uh, I'm singing in the voice of the dead, and the music is very childlike and mystical. On the record, I used the glockenspiel, and uh, I think I was interested in an oral projection of I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Mitchum film Night of the Hunter, which is kind of this horror story told from a child's perspective. And I was interested in an oral projection of that, that idea. Um, now, the character in this song, he's very plain spoken. He's just storytelling. What he did, what happened. Um, but the song takes place in a, in a place where it's quiet now. You know, it's after the violence. Um, and it feels like it's after his death. There's even a joke. Make sure my pretty baby sits right there on my lap. Um, and things kind of roll along until the end when someone or something else steps forward. And that's something else. That's me. And that's you. And that's him. And uh, we all kind of meet on. They declared me unfit to live. Everybody knows what that's like. Set into that great void, my soul be heard. Well, yes, it will. They want to know why I did what I did. Well, sir, I guess there's just meanness in this world. Well, yes, there is. And everybody knows what it's like to be condemned. That's Nebraska. All right, the second song on the first side of Nebraska is Atlantic City. Well, they blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. Now they blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're getting ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys... 
boys can do Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble out on the promenade And the gambling commission's hanging on by the skin of its teeth Well now everything dies, baby, that's a fact Maybe everything that dies someday comes back Put your makeup on, fix your hair pretty And meet me tonight in Atlantic City I play this song sometimes. Um, it's one of the more accessible songs and um, on the record. Um it, 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 it can easily be translated into a, um, a band arrangement. And in fact, obviously, it gets played live. You know, Bruce has played it live plenty with the, with the band. And also, the band did a, a pretty well-known version of it. It seems to me like has had um, you know, maybe better known or at least more legs than, than Bruce's version. It seems like I, I come across it more often. Um, they make some, some lyrical changes, which... Um, uh, I don't usually when I play it. Um, I usually stick with with Bruce, except he he jams an extra couple syllables into. Um, oh God, what is the line? I wish I had notated that. It's uh, it's somewhere in the in the third verse. Um, so uh, so to me, this song is um, is the least like the rest of the songs on the record um, sonically. The you know. Uh, musically, I'm sorry, uh, lyrically, thematically, it fits right in. This this is a character who is desperate. And, um, you know, in this case, um, he, much like uh, the character in Meeting Across the River, he thinks he can um, redeem himself with one last, um, you know, act that he's um, he's sort of sort of desperately trying to trying to do a favor for somebody. In this case, he does have a companion who is probably um, a little clueless about what's going down. Um, but uh, the night get cold, the night, the night's getting cold. And in fact, the band changes that to, it might get cold, which I don't like. Um, is the line of uh, the one that's like uh, down here, it's just winners and losers. And yeah, don't get yeah, caught yeah. on the wrong side of that yeah. line. That's the one. <laughs> right. Right. So, so the band says, don't get caught south of that line or something like this. Okay, and yeah. so I, I do that instead. Yeah. Look, I can't even, you know, much as I've tried, I can't jam all those syllables into that um, into that line. So, but sonically, um, you know, he double like I think this is probably the only one where he's actually got sort of two strummed acoustic guitars going on, something like that. So there's a there's a fairly serious groove and a fairly full sound. He's he's got two um, vocal tracks. One of them is this awesome sort of. Oh yeah, thing the, the harmony vocal on this is just fantastic. Uh, yeah. With, yeah. with the so, like in between the lines that he's singing in the verse. Oh, I love it. Yeah, no, I mean, singing on this entire record is is astonishing, oh, yeah. and you can you can hear it so nakedly. Um, and you think he's just but, recording a demo at this point? Like, did he? Did, yeah. Like he's not putting down a like a final vo- a master yeah. vocal take here, right? Yeah, yeah, and he's inhabiting these songs, yeah. you know, as a singer, um, and it's just going to be heard, th- you know, theoretically by his band. But um, so that's kind of the thing that stands out to me about Atlantic City is that sonically it, it really is uh, the the least Nebraska esque in my opinion of of all these songs and feels very ready to to have been on like a Born in the USA by the band you know with the band yeah this is the one that he he thought was going to be for sure a band song and 
you know, he, when he got in, when they the band couldn't hit this one better than the, the original, he I guess he realized, you know, this is the way we got to do this hmm. record. It's all got to be acoustic. The live versions are great though, like you said. Like he was playing this with the, like the the full band on the Born in the USA tour. I love the version they were doing on the uh, reunion tour in 99, 2000 with uh, little Steven on the mandolin and everything like that. And Max with that cool drum beat, man. But uh, we got to mention the chicken man, right? That opening line, well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night, right? So that's a true story, right? Chicken man was this cat uh, named Philip Testa. He was a mob guy. He was uh, an underboss and he was, I guess, the the main boss. I'm, I forget the names, but this the main boss died. So Philip Testa took his position because he was the underboss and these people were conspiring against them. So he was murdered by a nail bomb was planted under his front porch. So, uh, yeah, he actually, they blew up his house on March 15th, 1981. Right. So the The line, the line, uh, they blew up the chicken man, uh, in Philly last night. Right. So did, did Bruce write this on March 16th, 1981? You know, is it, is it that topical that that he quoted it like that? Right. That's interesting. And, you know, this guy, the character in the story, he's got himself in a, in a debt that no honest man can pay, right? So he's, he's how's he going to pay that debt? He's got to, you know, he's got to find a guy and, and do this, a favor for him. This, he's going to do a job this is, for this I, guy. I'm sorry, right? sorry to interrupt, but this is one of the lyrics. So one of the things that Bruce does, and presumably he does this on all of his records, but it shows up on Nebraska because these are demos, is he's recycling a bunch of lines. Like so mm-hmm. this this song... Uh, got that's no honest man could pay shows up again in Johnny 99. Absolutely. Um, and you'll see there's like, a couple of songs bunch, where that happens too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of lines in um, uh, open all night that, that he reuses in other songs on Nebraska. So that's kind of hip. Well, he's got these notebooks, right? And he's, he's right. famous for taking a song and then totally rewriting the music, but keeping a couple of lines from here and here. So if you look at his outtakes, some of these songs, kind of permutate into other songs and lines here right. show up in other songs kind of thing right but like i said the character in this song uh he's gonna do a job for this guy you know he's sick and tired of being on the losing end he met a, he met a guy and he's gonna do a favor for him right i love the mandolin in the mix that really makes it the um, the emotive harmonica we also we mentioned those background vocals which are just fantastic those wailing stuff in between the verses the harmony on the chorus right he's singing with harmony with himself and stuff like that, and I just love the ending with the uh, the woo-hoo-hoo, and the mandolin gets louder in the mix as it kind of fades out, right? And we yeah. should mention, I guess, Springsteen's first video. Like, there was a video for Rosalita, but it was just kind of like live concert footage. Yeah. This was actually his first video, kind of concept video. He didn't appear in it. The band wasn't in it. It was just kind of landscape shots with the song going on, right? Yeah. So the the chorus is very simple two line chorus. Everything dies, baby. That's a fact. But maybe everything that dies some days come someday comes back. So unlike a lot of characters on this album, this guy has an element of optimism. Like this this time it might work out. Um, but I think I think the last time he um, he sings the chorus, he he doesn't he doesn't include that second line. It's like everything dies, baby. That's a fact. Am I wrong? Am I wrong about that? I think, I think that <laughs> sounds right. Now, yeah, like I'm. I'm I, at one point, I knew that I knew this, but now I'm not quite so sure. <laughs> if, if I'm right about it, leave out all the dithering. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm wrong about it, cut I'll the whole cut thing. Here, yeah. 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 I mean, this is absolutely one of my favorite songs and my top 10 Springsteen songs. And before I get into it, I just wanted to add my voice uh, to the uh, endorsement of the band's 19 cover of uh, Atlantic City. That's among my very favorite covers of 
of Bruce Springsteen. It's on the album Jericho. So this is when the band they didn't have Robbie Robertson or the late Richard Manuel. It was it was Levon Helm, Rick Danko, and Garth Hudson. And that album is a gem. That is uh, an abs- absolutely amazing album. The song was made for Levon to sing, right? Just that yeah, it certainly was that voice yeah. of his singing this song, man. Well. Wow. Harmony vocals taken up by Rick Danko. The harmony vocals yeah, yeah, yeah. are Bruce double tracks. And I think, City. and I think uh, it's probably uh, Levon on mandolin on this song too, if I'm not mistaken. It is. Yeah. And Garth would... Hudson does the does the uh, accordion, accordion yeah, where yeah. Bruce did yeah. the the harmonica. Right, right. Yeah, uh, it's very cool. Well, you know, I, I love to look at Bruce. Uh, you know, his storytelling, and I think he would have made a great. Uh, uh, short story writer had he not been a, a among the greatest uh, songwriters, and this song is so brilliantly. Lee, you mentioned verse one and two that sits the scene, tells the, the tells us tells the listener of how after gambling was legalized in Atlantic City, the New York and Philadelphia mobs fought for control of the city's racket, and Phil Testa was was on the Philadelphia side, and he ended up getting killed. The New Jersey Gambling Commission, which was supposed to regulate the casinos, it ended up being under FBI investigation for massive corruption. And then it's only in verse three where we, where the narrator describes his own situation, what's led up to uh, the trip to Atlantic City. So we have the, the, he set the scene, provided the context. Now we get to him. You know, he's withdrawn what's left of his bank account to pay for their trip. And the little details, I love the little details. We see that he and his 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 beloved aren't traveling to Atlantic City exactly in style. They're taking the Coast City bus yeah, to yeah. get to Atlantic City. Right, right. Um, and in verse four, when he details, when he gets into the relationship itself, our luck may have died, our love may be cold, but with you forever I'll stay. I'm going out to where the sands turn into gold. So he personifies luck he personifies luck as his luck as having died and he acknowledges that there's this metaphorical coldness between him and his lover but you know speaking to dale's point earlier claims his luck and his relationship will both be reborn it's not really a spiritual religious uh reincarnation but but this redemption a metaphorical new start to his life that he's looking for. And uh, it it almost seems as though that, uh, you know, he believes the advertisements, the advertisements promising riches for everyone who visits Atlantic City casinos, right? That's almost a line that would have been in one of those ads turning to gold in, in Atlantic City. If only you could hit the jackpot. And then we get to verse five and Lee and other episodes, you've talked extensively about how the final verse of a Bruce Springsteen song is is often the most compelling, the most captivating. There's always a little twist in there. There's always something you didn't think the was twist, coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's only in verse five that we find out about the narrator's crucial choice. He's made this choice, a choice that he's now attempting to rationalize to a friend and to himself. And that happens a lot on the album Nebraska, the first person narrator's trying to rationalize their actions, their decisions. And, you know, in verse five, last night I met this man and I'm going to do a little favor for him. So he's agreed to do this favor, more understatement, right? Because there's nothing little. (laughs) We can assume that there isn't anything little about this favor that he's going to do. He's so desperate. 
He's chosen to involve himself in crime. And so while he may be like the characters in Meeting Across the River and Born to Run, trying to convince himself, you know, it's going to turn out okay. We know. There's that level of irony. We know that almost certainly he's made his situation worse. Right. And uh, I think, you know, picking up on what, what Dale had to say, it's not just the lyrics. It's that, that, that Bruce conveys this, the character's desperation. It's, it's, it's through the passionate vocals, the intense guitar strumming. Bruce has said, this is an album about characters on the edge. And this song is on the edge. I think you guys agree, both in the story it tells, but in the music that helps convey that mm-hmm. story. And I don't know about you guys, uh, if, 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 you, if I might be imagining this, but I've always found this song to be very Dylan-esque. The harmonica playing, the strumming, uh, the vocal delivery, like the very early Dylan, the Dylan of the, the, the folk albums, Freewheeling Bob Dylan, Times There Are Changing. He's not copying Dylan, but, but I, I think in the structure of the song, he, he's drawing on the work of Dylan. Yeah, that, that, that works for me. Um, the other thing that uh, there's Dylan, that Dylan then goes on later to, to do an echo of this song and some other ones when he does Tweeter and the Monkey Man, um, yes. with the Wilburys, right? right? right yeah. So, which, which, which is Dylan sort of just doing, I can write a Springsteen song, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, uh, so that was pretty hip. I, I, I want to circle back. Um, I was wrong about the, about that final chorus. Um, what he does is, so the whole chorus is four lines. Everything dies, baby. That's a fact. Some, sometimes every day, everything dies, uh, someday comes back. Put your makeup on, fix your hair up pretty, maybe in a night in Atlantic City. In the final chorus there, which is a tag to the bridge, he's saying everything that dies, everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Maybe everything that dies someday comes back. And he doesn't add those final two lines. I don't know. So you can just cut out that whole thing or we can we can investigate what that might mean. One thing I wanted to mention is, you know, like I, I write songs and um, I'm influenced, right? Like we all are. And Bruce is one of my bigger influences. I, I wrote a song a few years ago called Grip. And um, basically it's it's this guy sitting at his uh, his kitchen table. One of the, you know, like the bridge says, here's my paycheck. There's my bills. It don't add up and it never will. Um, so, you know, he's trying to figure out what to what to do about his situation. And in the final um, in the final verse, it says, uh, my father was a good man and a sucker. He worked every day because every time they hand you a dollar, they just snatch it away. I wonder if he looked at me like I'm looking at my son. I know a guy who knows a big man who needs a favor done. So that last yeah. line is is the same. You know, it's just stolen <laughs> from that line in Bruce. Yeah, it's you know, it's 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 this guy needs a favor done, and I'm going to do a little favor for him. You know, a friend of mine had suggested that maybe the favor is. Uh, he has the body, you know, getting rid of the body of the chicken man. That could be cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And the chicken man, we didn't mention the chicken man. He was called that because he had bouts of uh, chicken pox when he was younger and his face was all like pockmarked. So that's why he got the name chicken man. Yeah. Okay. Good old Philip Testa. Third song on the album is Mansion on the Hill.
There's a place out on the edge of town, sir, rising above the factories and the fields. Ever since I was a child, I can remember that mansion on the hill. So this song opens with a harmonica, kind of outlining the melody. Same title as a Hank Williams song, right? He borrowed the title, uh, changed the lyrics kind of thing, right? Bruce was a big Hank fan. He really exploring country music from uh, in, in this period of his life. The song focuses on childhood memories, right? There's a lot of songs where he uh, takes the point of view of a child, right? This I think this is one of them, really more autobiographical than the other ones. Uh, driving around with his father, looking at the big house up on the hill, right? The, the lower class uh, looking up at the other class on that hill, right? That big mansion. The perspective of the child. It's inspired by um, the film To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, Night of the Hunter. Both films were, were had that perspective of the child's point of view, right? So he kind of portrayed that in this song and kind of look, looking back on his own childhood. He tried this song with the E Street Band and he said it was good, but you know, it lost the vibe, the stillness of the acoustic demo, right? A lot of songs are going to hear that thing repeated. The E Street Band lost the vibe of, of that these simple demos kind of thing, right? This whole record is cinematic. It's like short stories. It's like short films. I can visualize that mansion on the hill. The first listen, I had that image of the mansion, and it hasn't changed in 40 years. I still see that same house in my head kind of thing, right? So, you know, he played this with the E Street Band on that reunion tour, which was really cool. He had Nils on steel guitar for that one, uh, Patty singing harmony vocals. Great song. Maybe not one of my favorites on the record, but it's still it's still a really good song. You know, um, harmonica solo, and I love that uh, that last uh, that last line where he's like, uh, "There's a beautiful full moon rising above the mansion on the hill." I was going to add too, when it comes to live versions of the song, the 1986 Bridge concert, uh, where he performed for the Brit Neil Young's Bridge School. He yeah. did a solo acoustic of "Mansion on the Hill," and it was absolutely beautiful. But a uh, couple things about this song. I mean, you, you've already pointed out many of the things that make this this song uh, so brilliant, so memorable. I love the use of adjectives. I love the adjectives in Mansion the Hill. Gates of hardened steel. The town is so silent and still. And in that last line, it's a beautiful full moon rising. So the descriptive writing here is so critical. It's so pared down. Uh, in verse two, Bruce uses a rhetorical device. It's called anadiplosis. That's the name of the device. And he uses it to great effect. It means referring to the last word of one phrase at the beginning of the next phrase. And it's in the following lines. On the road that leads to those gates of hardened steel, steel gates that completely surrounds her, the mansion on the hill. So the repetition here, the repetition places special emphasis on the steel gates. Say they're that not word again. just physical objects, right? They're, they're not just physical objects. What's the word? Anadiplosis. 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 Yeah. yeah. And Write so. That down, kids. I like that. And, and, I'm going so home, the, so the, home to where my stuff is. <laughs> there we go. Anadiplosis. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and so these steel gates, I mean, they're the physical object steel gates, but they're also symbols. They're symbols of the class structure. That, that, that separate the wealthy from the working class. And mm -hmm. it's the people on the other side of the gates 
who have the grand summer parties filled with music and laughter. The narrator and his sister, they can only listen uh, to the fun. And uh, the final verse uh, is, is my favorite verse in this song. Just like in my hometown, the final verse of Mansion the Hill moves to the present day. Uh, verse five reveals that in the years since this stop and he's become an adult, nothing has changed. Yeah. Nothing has changed in terms of the social economic class structure of, of Lindentown or of America. The laborers are heading home from the mill in the shadow of the mansion. But absolutely brilliant and devastating ending. There's a running theme through this album, through all the songs about can the, the lower class, can the middle class still, can the blue collar people, can the working people still achieve the American dream kind of thing, right? I, see, I hear that a lot in these songs. Dale, what are your thoughts on this uh, mansion on the hill? If you're not born rich, you want to be rich. And that engenders uh, some complicated feelings towards rich people. And the symbols of wealth, right? If you are born rich, I guess you want to be king, right? Yeah. Um, and it, this song, to me, perfectly encapsulates the combination of, of envy and resentment that every working class and probably middle class person has toward the very rich. Um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a very difficult... Um, uh, pension to to hold inside of you symbols of wealth are everywhere they're shoved in our faces all the time and every time we see one we have that combination of like i'm gonna do that and fuck that if you'll excuse my language um you want to be them and you hate them uh so i you know to me like that and the and that the last line there or the last verse there where, where you've got that line of cars coming down from the mill and the full moon rising, just illuminating this, you know, this beautiful sort of, you know, uh, Taj Mahal, <laughs> you know, this, this, this unattainable, um, you know, symbol of, of, of glory that these, that these poor suckers are just, I guess, theoretically trying to work towards and somewhere in their hearts know that that's, that's not going to happen. Gonna yeah. yeah. So, um, musically, this is one of my, um, this is not a song that ever really uh, captured me. Um, there's a couple of songs on this record, and this this is true for me also of some of um, some of the later stuff on, on, for instance, Ghost of Tom Joad, where you know certainly at the time, and I think since then I've gotten a little bit more of an appreciation of sort of a simple folk song and a simple folk melody. But I was always more interested in Bruce musically when he's doing um, things that have a little bit more of a of of a groove um, that's maybe you know. M- uh, more more um based in and you know like an african tradition or you know an Af- a black tradition than a than a, an english folk tradition um and you know he's he's definitely you know got woody guthrie and stuff going here and if you listen to woody like he's not coming up woody's not coming up with original melodies and original guitar parts that's not what he does um and i think bruce is doing that here and um to me at the time you know and and um it, you know, this along with one or two other songs are not interesting enough melodically or um, in terms of the accompaniment to, to rise to that level of some of these others um, that have a cool groove. All right, next up we got Johnny 99. 
by the time we get to Johnny 99, we've already uh, listened to one song on Nebraska about a murderer. Uh, and yet, I think uh, Johnny 99, it doesn't seem overly repetitious or redundant. It's the story of Ralph, you know, who having lost, uh, uh, committed these murders and then is, uh, and then is, is sentenced to jail for 99 years by an extremely uh, sarcastic judge. Uh, but I, 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 as I say, I don't think it's repetitious. I don't think it's redundant for a couple of reasons. Whereas the song Nebraska is a folk ballad, Johnny 99 is a song that incorporates elements of rockabilly and the blues, even the blue yodel of, uh, of the great Jimmy Rogers. And whereas Nebraska, as you were saying, is a first person narrative from the perspective of the murderer himself, Johnny 99 is what is called third-person omniscient narrative. The, the, the narrator tells the story in the third person, knows uh, uh, everything that needs to be known about the characters and the events. So in other words, on this album, Nebraska, we're given an account of murder from the inside, business of, of the murderer, and in a sense, from the outside, through the, uh, the third-person narrator of Johnny 99. So it's it's different from uh, Nebraska in, 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 in those respects. And at the same time, I think it really deepens and reinforces the key themes of the album, the themes that are introduced on the title track, the meanness in this world. Uh, this interview, Lee quoted this interview earlier, Stone in December 1984. And, and in that interview, Bruce offered what I think is really one of the best summing ups of the major themes of Nebraska. And, and I'll quote a little bit more of it. He said, uh, Bruce said to Kurt Loder, I think you can get to the point where nihilism, if that's the right word, is overwhelming. And the basic laws that society has set up, either religious or social laws, become meaningless. Things just get really dark. You lose those constraints and those, the forces that set that in motion, I don't know exactly what they'd be, I think just a lot of frustration, lack of finding something that you can't hold on to, lack of contact with people, you know, that's the most dangerous things. Yeah, no, I love that quote, actually. That's that's one of my favorite um, passages of, of a Bruce interview. Yeah, no question. Uh, and in fact, you know, explicitly in the, uh, the first line of this song, we learn that um, Ralph's desperation stems from having lost his job. Um, he lose, you know, he's, he's a, he's a working man. You lose your job, then you, you're losing your money. You're, you're losing your ability to provide for your family. And in a sense that really impacts your dignity as a human being. And, um, it's just too much for him. He goes on this rampage and, um, and really like that, that all happens within the first couple lines, you know, he loses his job, he gets drunk and he, and he shoots up the place and they take him down and things just at that point, you know, that, that, to happen around him he you know a, a trial happens a, the judge does this he gets led in by the bailiff he doesn't do or say much a fight breaks out um his mom says you can't do this to my son um it really isn't until um the end that that ralph uh gets to speak and he says that he says the stuff that really makes him sort of a classic anti-hero you see you see uh characters like this um, you know, like all over the place, you know, Black Jack Davy, you know, comes to mind. A lot of reggae uh, songs have kind of uh, an outlaw 
hero to them. Um, somebody who is just, you know, I mean, and this is sort of like, you know, you're, you're, uh, the wild ones with Brando, you know, what do you, what are you rebelling against? What do you got? Right. Um, so Johnny, uh, or, you know, Ralph at this point says, you know, I do believe I'd be better off dead, your honor. And, uh, he says, uh, you know, if you can take a man's life for the thoughts that's in his head, you know, you just, just go ahead and execute me. Just do it now. <laughs> I like that. Um, and this is, uh, this is actually kind of, uh, uh, there's, there's a Dylan line from, um, uh, it's all right, mom, only bleeding, um, where he says, I'm, I'm going to botch this. It's not coming ex- exactly to mind right now. I should, I should have looked it up because this wasn't in my prepared remarks. Right. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to look it up for a second. So you, you can go ahead and, you know, lead through this part while I, um, well, I look up the line. I have it here, Dale, which uh, uh, I have my Dylan book right in front of me, which oh, uh, he, he says um, it's near the end. Let's see. I'm, I'm looking at that. From them that must be authority. No, no. Um, if there's, this is, there's a lot of lyrics here. If my, It's the final verse. If my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine. That's how Dylan pronounces it. But it's all right, ma. So, so this guy, um, you know, Ralph turns into Johnny 99 at that moment when he declares himself, um, go ahead and kill me. I got nothing to live for. It's cold. It's as cold as it gets. I play this song because it's, it's just one of the coolest songs on the record. And it's got that great, it's got a rumba beat. It's bop, 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 bop. Am I getting that name of that beat right, Lee? You're a drummer. Yeah, I think that's close. Yeah, it's, it's got some syncopation yeah. to the way he's playing his guitar. Like, there's no drums on this, but the rhythm right. that he's banging out, he's got a little bit of a, like a rockabilly guitar part instead of the other like finger picking and strumming stuff. He's really kind of got a, yeah. a groove going on here, and he's that right hand of his has got that rhythm going. Yeah, so I think that's it, and I think that's that that great falsetto thing that he does, um, you know, at the in the introduction, and then I think at the end, um, it, yeah, just it starts with it, like it a lonesome, a desperate track. wail off the top. There he does, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I play this one, you know, and I, I kind of worked it up, and I've performed this one. I, I dig it a lot. Yeah, this is one man with a guitar telling his story. I, I always envision in my head he's like in prison talking to the other inmates. They're like, "What are you in for?" And he's like give me that guitar. I'll tell you what I'm in for. Right. And this is the song he sings to the the fellow convicts there. Right. You know, you lose hope when you, your job gets taken away and you do some crazy things. So this is what he does. And I love that line too. Uh, he, he got drunk one night from mixing tankeray and tangeray and wine. Right. So like you don't mix, like you mix gin and wine. Oh man, that's, that's trouble, right? (laughs) You're looking for trouble if you're mixing gin and wine. You lost at that point. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Right. Kills this guy at a gas station. He kills this night clerk. Right. Uh, what do we got? You guys have kind of hit everything. I don't really got much to say. This is the song though we mentioned earlier. He's got that line. Uh, he's got debts that no honest man can pay. He's telling that to the judge, right? Same line from yeah. uh, Atlantic City. Similar to Nebraska, this guy's gonna die by the electric chair, right? Nebraska's got that lines uh, line when they put the leather straps across my chest. In this song, he's got they're gonna shave my head at the end, right? The rockabilly. I love the slap back on the vocal there with the uh, the maestro Echoplex EP3 is playing through. The overdub guitar is good. Uh, solo licks in there on the third verse on the coda. 
Uh, great live versions with the E Street Band. The lyrics get buried because when he plays it live with the E Street Band, it just turns into a party. It just turns into a rock and roll song, right? And he's done this with the Seeger Sessions Band too, which is phenomenal. That's on the, uh, I think they do this on Live in Dublin record. And right. uh, there's like a bonus track, and I think it's one of those. But you know, with that band, with the accordion and the fiddles and the banjos, and everybody's taking a solo, it's it's a it's a hoot, right? And we got to mention the uh, the Johnny Cash cover, which is phenomenal, right? Johnny Cash did a record called Johnny Ninety Nine in 1983, and he covered two songs off that record, Johnny Ninety Nine, and the one coming up next. He does a great version of it, and you know, when Johnny Cash sings your song, like forget about it, right? And there's a nice video. There's a cool video for it. It's a little bit, a little bit lighter than maybe the Springsteen version because you know it's kind of depicts the courtroom scene in the video. So uh, do yourself a favor and check that out. That Johnny Ninety Nine video by Johnny Cash. Well, they closed down the auto plant in Mawa late last month. Ralph went out looking for a job, but he couldn't find none. He came home too drunk from mixing tangeray and wine. He got a gunshot a night, but now they call him Johnny 99. Down at the part of town where when you hit a red light, you don't stop. Johnny's waving his gun around and threatening to blow his top. When an off-duty cop snuck up on him from behind In front of the club tip-top They slapped the cuffs on Johnny 99 Well, the city supplied the public defender But the judge was mean John Brown He came into the courtroom And he stared poor Johnny down Well, the evidence is clear Gonna let the sentence fit the crime Ninety-eight in a year We'll make it even Johnny Ninety-nine Stay tuned for the conclusion of our Nebraska album review 
Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you next time. So that's the show, folks. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website at TrampsLikeUsPod.com. Communicate with us on Facebook at our Tramps Like Us podcast group page. Tramps Like Us podcast is a nonprofit audio fanzine created by fans for fans and is available for free. We are not affiliated with Bruce Springsteen or Columbia Sony Records. If you've heard any music you like, please find it and purchase it from BruceSpringsteen.net, Amazon, your local record store, or wherever music is sold. As always, gratitude and respect to Bruce Springsteen and all past and current members of the heart-stopping, pants-dropping, hard-rocking, booty-shaking, earthquaking, love-making, Viagra-taking, history-making, testifying, death-defying, legendary E Street Band. Nebraska. Ten songs from the heartland by Bruce Springsteen. From men at work, it's business as usual. The album that jumped to the top with the hits Down Under. And who can it be now? You can't miss with a gift that's already a hit. Men at work and Bruce Springsteen.